Good morning. I see my mic is on. Uh, I'm back, which means one of two things. Either last time I shared, there was something of significance. I wonder if I need to back up just a little bit here. Um, maybe turn, the, turn me off in the monitors, possibly. I don't know. Um, it means that either I shared something that was of value to you or you realized I needed a mulligan and another shot at it. So uh, I'm back, and we're going to talk this morning about uh, the Good Samaritan. And Jody has pretty much already preached my sermon for me, probably in a way that you would better understand and is far more entertaining. But we're going to go ahead anyway because I need the practice. Um, a parable is a story that Jesus told to make a point. And we're going to examine uh, the, the story of who is my neighbor today. When I was first assigned this topic, uh, I got all excited about all the stories that I could tell of people that I tried to help through the years. And so I put it all together and I had more than two and a half hours worth of material. So I had to scrap the stories. I think it'd be much better if you leave this place with God's word on your mind instead of a bunch of crazy stories I can tell. But I do love to tell the stories, so if you want to hear the stories, you just have to ask. In my 60 years of life, I've come to realize that everything will not always be neat and tidy. It's not going to be neat and tidy in my life, and it's not going to be neat and tidy in the lives of those around me. And I hate that. I want neat and tidy. I want black and white. I want control. In my perfect world, everyone does what I want them to, and everything does what I think it should do. But that's not the fallen world we live in, is it? People make mistakes. They make bad choices that hurt themselves and others. Things break. Everything around us is in a constant state of decay, and everyone around us is battling the forces of darkness in their own personal way, or they're giving in to them. And right in the middle of all this cosmic chaos is the church, is us. We need each other. We need beneficial relationships. Sometimes we need help. And sometimes we need to help. Our uh, passage of Scripture today comes out of Luke, chapter 10 and verse 30 through 37. I'm reading in the New International Version. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Now, previously in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus had appointed 72 to go out in groups of two before him to do ministry in the places that he was about to visit. And they returned with rejoicing because of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that they had witnessed as they were going about, uh, casting out demons and doing all kinds of amazing things. And Jesus responds with, I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the learned and you've revealed them to little children. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Many who wanted to were unable to see or hear what you have seen and heard. So we have the ministry of the 72. Uh, Their experiences are the backdrop of what follows. An expert in the law asked Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? I think that's a good question, don't you? Uh, An expert in the law, and he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers with a question. How do you read what the law says? Now, I think that's a valid question to ask following a question because this man was an expert in the law, correct? So Jesus says, how do you read the law? And the expert replies with, love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells the man, you are right. Do this, and you will live. End of story. Except the expert then poses another question. And that question is, and who is my neighbor? Now, do you see what's going on here? On the one hand, we have the 72, just common average people going out, and in the power of the Spirit, they see great wonders performed. And on the other, we have a spiritual leader of the country, and he's confused over who he should minister to. And he's just wanting to justify his lifestyle. So Jesus answers his question, who is my neighbor, with the story, uh, the story that we just read. And uh, let's take a little closer look at the who is my neighbor story. The Jericho Road at the time of Christ was a notoriously dangerous thoroughfare used by merchants and plagued by highwaymen and thieves. The scenario that Jesus describes would not have been an uncommon scenario. So he's telling a story that possibly could have happened at that time on the Jericho Road. Uh, The first character in the story is a nondescript man who is beaten, robbed, and left for dead. That's all we know. Jesus does not mention age. He doesn't mention ethnicity. Or he doesn't mention occupation. He's the only character in the story that's not assigned a label. And I think that's important as we move on. The only guy that was not assigned a label in the story. The first two people to pass by, the injured traveler, were religious leaders. Jesus may have used them as examples because his story is addressing a question asked by a religious leader. So why did they pass by on the far side of the road? Well, one possibility is, as observers of Jewish law, if the beaten man were dead and they got too close, they would become unclean and have the incredible inconvenience of going through the purification process to look forward to before they could ever uh, enter the temple again. Perhaps they had duties to perform there that day, and to linger there was to risk their own bodily harm. 
So they were able to avoid danger and hassles by not getting involved. In the story, Jesus chose a member of a despised people group as the person who actually stopped to help. And since we don't talk a lot about Samaritans in our society today, I wanted to try to put this on a more of a relevant uh, level for us. So I, I started to think, who might I think of as good Samaritans today? And I came up with truck drivers. Now, anyone who has worked in transportation knows that they are often disrespected and they're treated poorly as they go about their work. If they stop to help someone, it may mean missing a pickup or drop-off appointment. It messes up their logbook records. It takes them from income because they only have a certain number of hours they can work a day, and they're paid by the mile. So to, help, to stop and help someone is, is an incredible inconvenience for them. Yet they do it all the time. You know, hardly a week goes by where you don't hear about a truck driver stopping and pulling somebody out of a, a burning wreck or helping in any number of ways. And so that was, I tried to put it on more of our, our basis, a, a good Samaritan. But getting back to the story, um, we have two religious leaders who did nothing for the dying man, and we have a Samaritan who bandaged him up, provided transportation, and covered his expenses. After Jesus finished this story, he poses a question. Who was the neighbor to the wounded man? And the expert answers, the neighbor is the one who had compassion. And Jesus responds, go and do likewise. Now, if we think about this a little closer, the original question was, who is my neighbor that I should be showing love to, right? We, we heard, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And then the expert in law asked, well, who is my neighbor? So... The question is, who is my neighbor that I should be showing love to? And right away, we think of the wounded man. He is the man that we should be showing love to. But in the story that Jesus tells, the neighbor is the Samaritan who stopped to help. It wasn't the man that was injured. The neighbor is the man who stopped to help. Uh, and now I have nothing against loving Samaritans, but this might be a rather confusing answer to the question if Jesus had not finished with, now go and do likewise. By answering in this way, he changes the discourse from who should I love to how should I love. He changed the discourse. His answer to who is my neighbor is go and be a neighbor. I think because the answer to who is my neighbor that I should love should be obvious. It's anyone that God places in our life's pathway. How silly to think that the love of Christ flowing through us should be limited to certain people. That's, that's just silly in light of who God is. The expert wanted to know who to love, and Jesus answers with how to love. So we're left with these two things to consider. Who is my neighbor and how to be a neighbor? Uh, the first point is, uh, who is my neighbor? Who am I to love? I believe Jesus did not describe the man who was beaten and robbed because the neighbor we should love is anyone that God places in our lives. And we want to start with those neighbors who are often overlooked, the ones we know and walk right by on a daily basis. 
I'm talking about our family. They can be neighbors, our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, our sisters and brothers. Often the people we hurt the most are the ones we are closest to. It's time to bring healing to those relationships, and it starts with us. I'm talking about our workplaces and our neighborhoods, the wounded that we walk by daily, some of them wounded by our very own words and actions. I know I've been guilty of that. It's time to bring healing to those relationships, and it starts with us. And I'm talking about our church. All those we've been critical of for one reason or another, those we have talked about instead of prayed for, those in leadership we have maligned, and those who are pouring out their hearts in ministry that we have discouraged instead of helped. You know, there's a very sobering verse that's written to the church in Hebrews 13:7 that I'd like to share with you because I think it's very important. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That's a lot of spiritual pressure, let me tell you. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I have to stop and ask myself on a regular basis, am I being a joy or a burden? I think we all should be asking ourselves that question. In 1 Peter 4.17, it's written, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Have you ever considered that maybe those who haven't obeyed won't obey until we get our household in order? I'm... I'm just going to beg here. Please, I'm begging you. If you have something against a family member, a neighbor, or brother or sister in Christ, go to them and try to make it right. It's time to bring healing to these relationships, and it starts with us. I know it starts with me because I'm a bandit. I'm a wounder. I have this thing that Kathy and I have labeled group mark, where when I get around a lot of people, I like to try to entertain them. And a lot of times I go way too far and I say things that can be hurtful or, or very least irritating. And I get so caught up in, in wanting to entertain that I say these stupid things, offensive things. Sometimes I can be vindictive when I don't get my way. I know these things are happening because I catch myself doing them. And you can check with my wife on this, but I probably get to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me more than anyone else here. It's time to bring healing to those neighbors we know, and it starts with us. I've said it so many times, and it hasn't killed me yet. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Bring healing to your relationships. So those are neighbors that we know and we pass by every day. Uh, there are also uh, neighbors that we encounter that we may never see again. We want to also be a source of help and healing there. Uh, Hebrews 13 uh, 
gives us a very intriguing thought. It says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Isn't that a fascinating thought? That you should help somebody, and in the process, you're entertaining a messenger from God? That guy that I bought gas for in Utah this summer may have been an angel in an old Camaro. Fascinating to me. Chances are we're actually ministering to angels when we show compassion on someone that we don't know. So that's my answer to who is my neighbor. My neighbor is everyone. That's who we're to love. Everyone. Now let's look at the how to be a neighbor part of the passage. How am I to love? I can be a neighbor in this current generation by living in the light of the eternal and not the temporal. By living in the light of the eternal and not the temporal. By making people a priority over things. All our time can easily get caught up in things. Don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, Technology, hobbies, travel, home improvements, smartphones. As As I walk around town on my lunch hour, ride my bike back and forth to work, Pretty much everybody I see is like this. It just amazes me. If we can get away from, from technology and start thinking about people, we're going from temporary to eternal. And that's one of the ways we can become a good neighbor. I can be a neighbor by being wise and discerning. And I, left, I put this in here because I think it's important. As neighbors, we are not called to enable bad behavior. We can love someone without accepting their sin. What did Paul write in 1 Corinthians 13? I think it says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. In fact, real love refuses to accept bad behavior. Love seeks to set people free from the bonds of sin. Be spiritually alert. Be aware of what God is doing and who He places in your life. And then allow his Holy Spirit to love that neighbor through you. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 was written to a church that was right in the middle of a lot of squabbles. And I'd like to visit that passage. I feel like love is such a critical part of what we do. If our actions are not based in love, they will, only, they will not accomplish anything of lasting value. 1 Corinthians 13 starts with, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just a bunch of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, but surrender my body to the flames, have not love, I've gained nothing. It doesn't matter what plans we make or how hard we work at being a neighbor if it's not done out of the right motivation. Francis Chan, in his book entitled Crazy Love, writes, Nothing you do in this life will ever matter unless it is about loving God and loving the people that he has made. 
Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 13, and he describes what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, if that passage is not speaking to you yet, you need to personalize it. Put your name in the passage where it says love. Mark is patient. Mark is kind. Mark does not envy. Mark does not boast. Mark is not proud. It doesn't take long, and the passage will start speaking to you. And we'll see our desperate need for the love of Christ to flow through us. I can be a neighbor by following others' examples. Look around you and see others in the body of Christ who are being neighborly. I did so this last week, and here's just a couple examples that come to mind. Now, uh, most of you know my wife, Kathy. You know that when I married, I married way up. I think in football terms, they call it out-kicking the coverage. Anyhow, she's an amazing woman, and she's chosen to be a bright light on a dark college campus. She shares light and hope in the classroom. She speaks at chapel. She's put herself out there as a spiritual advisor, and on a very practical level, she provides healthy snacks and a welcoming atmosphere in her office. Some days she has so many students coming through, she doesn't get anything done. But she's being a neighbor. Those are eternal things that she's doing. I thought of my daughter, McKenna. Ever since she started school, she's been a part of Lunch Bunch. That's a group of kids that sit at a table with other kids who are having a hard time making friends and eats lunch. Ever since I've known her, she's been doing Lunch Bunch. I talked to Terry Johnson last week and found out that over the last 18 years, they've cared for, he and Angie have cared for over 30 kids for extended periods of time through foster care. Those are kids, those are hurting kids that they were a neighbor to took care of. It's wonderful. This last year, we had teams from our church help two refugee families get settled in Lincoln. That's those unknown neighbors that we come across. And I'm very proud of the work that was done there. The Waverly Covenant Church is starting a divorce care class to help those who are going through divorce. I personally have benefited through that program, and I actually helped start one in another church and led it for a couple years. Uh, very helpful for people in deep need. There are also other ministries such as Grief Share and Celebrate Recovery that I've been involved in that are also very helpful. Sometimes being a neighbor can be as simple as babysitting for a couple with small children who need a break. Talk about being left for dead. <laughs> Anybody that has small children knows sometimes you need a break. Sometimes uh, we can just help out there. For me, and, and this is one of the hardest things to do, especially when I'm at work, but 
It often is as simple as pushing away from my keyboard, putting down the electronic device, and actually listening to someone who needs to talk. Or it could be shutting off the TV when you sense that someone needs to talk. It's a very simple way uh, to be a neighbor, but so often it's missed. When I think about all the things that I could be doing to help others, it's easy for me to become overwhelmed and end up paralyzed, unable to do anything. I don't know if that happens to you, but when I think of all the needs out there, I can just become paralyzed. So instead, I've set my sights on just following the Spirit's civil leading. I can do that. Who has God placed in my life? How is He wanting me to show love to them? Who has God placed in my life? How should I love them? The Apostle Paul said this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but when we serve others, we're serving Jesus Christ. That should make it worthwhile, shouldn't it? And it is through his power, Christ's power, that we serve others. 1 Peter 4.11 says, And whoever serves, let them do it in the strength that God provides. Let them do it in the strength that God provides. When we allow the Spirit of Christ to dictate how we live, then we can truly become a good Samaritan. By faith, this is by faith, we can acknowledge the truth that our old, weak, ineffective, selfish selves have been crucified with Christ. Making room for His powerful, loving, peaceful life to flow through us and to our neighbors. I want to say that again because that's the most important thing I'm going to say today. We may feel like it's up to us to be a good neighbor but it's not. It's up to Christ. It's up to us to get out of the way so that he can be a neighbor through us. By faith, we can acknowledge the truth that our old, weak, ineffective, selfish person, I'm so tired of that person, it's been crucified with Christ. We can acknowledge that truth. Making room for Christ's powerful, loving life to flow through us to our neighbors. It's a beautiful thing. When I first started thinking about this message, I spent a week walking around concerned about, well, just really temporal things. My favorite tennis players were losing at the U.S. Open. My favorite college football team was losing, and I understand that hasn't changed. I had a demo at work that was looming. My roof on my house was leaking. And it just wouldn't stop raining. And right in the middle of all of that, God finally got my attention, gently saying to me, isn't it time that you started being concerned about the things that concern me? Isn't it time that you started being concerned about the things that concern me? Now, when Jesus told the story of the good neighbor, I'm pretty sure he wanted us to know that caring for a dying man was far more important than getting back to the temple. The Good Samaritan chose to be concerned with what God was concerned with. And this story ringing down 
through the ages is calling us to be concerned about the things that Christ is concerned with.